The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. The Institute of Art and Ideas, articles, videos, and podcasts. Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, the podcast that brings you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. How much is it really possible to know about the universe? And where do the boundaries of scientific knowledge lie? On today's episode, we're discussing the philosophy of science and the limits of what we can know. We're joined remotely by paleontologist, evolutionary biologist, and senior editor of the scientific journal Nature, Henry Gee, who dares us to consider everything we cannot know. Right at the edge of science, right at the edge of knowledge, where people are really looking into the gloom and finding new things that nobody knew before. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review, join the conversation on Facebook and Twitter, and head over to our website, iai.tv. Back now to Henry Gee. Now, I'm going to give you a very whistle-stop tour of the limits of knowledge. This is an open-top bus tour, bus tour uh, the like of which you've never seen. First, um, I want to introduce you to, um, I think, uh, posterity will view as the greatest philosopher of the 20th century. Um, That is, I refer, of course, to Donald Rumsfeld, the former um, uh, Defence Secretary of the United States, who uh, probably... um, trying to uh, to evade some direct questioning, said there were three kinds of knowledge. There are the known knowns. There are the things that we know that we know. And then there are the known unknowns. They're the things that we know that we don't know. In other words, we do know that there are some things that we don't know. And finally, there are also the unknown unknowns. And these are the things... These are the facts that we don't know that we don't know, but there's knowledge out there that we have no idea that it exists. Now, we all know or think we know the things that we know we know. No? First of all, here's an example. We all know or think we know that the sun is going to come up in the morning every day, Uh, and we've known this since antiquity. Um, so we can reliably state, because we've seen it every day ourselves, that uh, the sun will come up in the morning. Now, um, there probably was a time when one Aztec would say to the other, we'd have to do the human sacrifice now, Bert, um, or the uh, sun won't come up tomorrow. And the other one says, yeah, but we know the sun will always come up tomorrow. And the other one said, care to care to miss it and see. Ah, I see the point. But we have since then sent satellites into space and we know something about the structure of the local universe. We know that the Earth revolves around the sun and that it's as sure as sure can be that the sun will come up in the morning. So that's one thing that we know we know. 
Although you're probably beginning to detect that even with the things that we know that we know, there are some fuzziness, there's some little boojums at the edges. Uh, another one we think we know we know is basic arithmetic. One plus one is two, two plus two equals four, and all the operations of uh, basic maths. Um, so these were always the case when I was at school and when your children were at school and those of you who are doing homeschooling will, will, will know to a nauseating degree that this is something we know we know. However, even in the basics of the arithmetic, they're little boojums at the edges, things that are unknown, things that are strain the limits of knowledge. Back in the early 20th century, the philosopher Bertrand Russell and his friend uh, Alfred North Whitehead wanted, were fascinated by the philosophy of numbers. Why are numbers? What are numbers? What is their property? And they thought that mathematics was on a very uncertain footing and wanted to pin it down. They wanted to find the substructure of mathematics, reducing everything to logic. And in their huge book called Principia Mathematica, it took them, you know, loads and loads of pages and thought just to get to prove that one plus one was two. Um, what they were trying to do was find that there's a logical structure under arithmetic. Um, uh, now, this was fine until the 1930s when a fellow called Kurt Gödel came along and he said that... Um, there are, in any mathematical system that is complete, in other words, it can, it can, ex it can express any, uh, any theorem, any view that you want, there will be some statements that you know are true, but you can't prove it. In other words, there are undecidable propositions. So um, that goes to show uh, that um, even in basic maths, there are things that you can't know that you know. I'll move on. Now, uh, time was not very long ago that everyone thought that the Earth was created in 4004 BC on one day of October at tea time. Uh, this was uh, uh, worked out by a chap called Archbishop of Usher. He was, he was the, an Archbishop of Omar in Ireland. Um, but since then, we've found, uh, using a lot of scientific methods and geology and stratigraphy, that the Earth is very, very old and there is a fossil record um, that the Earth is, is extremely old. So this has been shown to be the case by multiple intersecting, corroborating lines of evidence. So these are things that we know that we know. And there are lots of things I'm sure you can think of like that. However, so we do have some idea of some of the things we know we don't know. Now, this is where science works. Science is all about trying to investigate the things that we know that we don't know. Um, and here are a few of those. One is we know that we don't know that there is something called dark matter. Well, we know that we know that there is something called dark matter, but we don't know what it's made of. Uh, we know, looking at the motions of stars and galaxies, that they do things that are um, incompatible uh, with the law of gravity, provided that all the matter we see is all we can see. In other words, there's a lot more matter we can't see. It's called dark matter, and we don't know what it's made of. Another thing that we know uh, we don't know is how many species there are on the planet. Now, I was in a debate yesterday about extinction, and one of the problems about extinction is we don't know how many species there are on the planet. 
People have tried to count this in various ways by digging up soil and sampling the microbes or rattling trees and seeing how many things fall out and extrapolating it. And, you know, estimates have varied from a million species to hundreds of millions of species. Um, we know that there are a lot of species, but we don't know how many there are. So that's something, one of the things we know that we don't know. Another thing that we know that we don't know is whether there is any life in the universe apart from uh, on the Earth. A subsidiary is if there is in, in any intelligent life in the universe. Now, my son tells me that there is no intelligent life on Earth because he's just waiting for the lizard people to come down and claim him for their own. And my son, the same fellow, when much younger, drew a picture, which I wish I could show you, um, of a very fed-up-looking Dalek, um, and the caption, I'm fed up of exterminating. I want to be a celebrity chef. So uh, we don't know if there are any Daleks, let alone those who have, are fed up of exterminating and want to bake cakes instead. Um, this is something we know that we don't know, and I'm sure you can think of a lot of things. In, in fact, the whole of scientific inquiry is based on this. People look at the world or their experimental system and ask questions of it. Uh, they can do this either by collecting lots of data in an undirected way and then seeing if any patterns emerge, or they can ask a question of it, a hypothesis, and then collecting the data to test the hypothesis. Now, these are called inductive reasoning and deductive reasoning, and I can never remember which is which, and it doesn't matter because they're not mutually exclusive. But this is what scientists do, and this concerns me greatly um, because in my day job, I am a I am a senior editor of the science journal Nature, and in Nature we like to um, uh, entertain, as it were, the most cutting edge research uh, right at the edge of science right at the edge of knowledge where people are really looking into the gloom and um uh, finding new things that nobody knew before so what about the things we don't know we don't know now before we start we have to realize that there are things we don't know we don't know and I say that because there is a strand of thought uh, among some scientists uh, that um, knowledge and ignorance are a zero-sum game. And the more things we know, uh, the, the less ignorance there is. When, In other words, we're shining an ever brighter light into an ever-shrinking puddle of ignorance. Au contraire, say I, I think that the more we find out, the more we realise that uh, how much we don't know. Our knowledge, our ignorance increases disproportionately to the amount of knowledge. So, for example, if you're struggling up some hill and you see the horizon and you think that's the top of the hill and you think, goodness me, I know that's the horizon, it's the top of the hill, but when you get there, you find that there's even more hills to climb. Uh, so um, all of this is exemplified by the cliché sentence at the end of any scientific discourse that says, this raises more questions than it answers. And as this is such a truism, we always delete it in nature. Now, you and I 
know that we can only know the things we don't know we don't know through the things that we know that we don't know, even though some things will prob probably remain forever unknowable, as Girdle showed with his undecidability proposition, and as Harry the hipster Gibson asked in the unanswered question of who it was who put the benzedrine in Mrs. Murphy's Ovaltine. And here's another one that I can't show you. It's a slide. I have two sculptures by Rodin uh, that you'll know, that you'll know. One is The Kiss, where you have a couple engaged in a passionate clinch, and the other is The Thinker. And in my slide, which you can't see, the thinker is saying, so what's he got that I haven't? One of the things that we know that we don't know. Now, as I say, this is the excitement of discovery, finding out whole new worlds of potential knowledge of whose existence we had been previously unaware. Now, why are there things that we don't know that we don't know? They're there, so why don't we know that we don't know them? And one of the things I suggest is we paper over the cracks in our ignorance with assumptions that are usually based over, based on the nature of what we think is progress. So take, not, take technology, for example. We often assume that technology is an unbroken story of progress from the flint cobble to the mobile phone. In other words, from the stone to the phone. I have some things here, just a sec. I have them. Here is a stone and here is a phone. You see, I do, don't have slides, but I do have props. And historians of technology uh, will dissect something like this and find the whole history of technology. Both of these things are made of silicon, largely, but this incorporates a lot of other things. It incorporates glass blowing, it incorporates metallurgy that's been since antiquity, um, it incorporates transistors and integrated circuits and computer code that started in the Second World War with people like Turing and von Neumann, um, and uh, one progresses to the other. However, discoveries may happen that challenge that assumption opening little vistas of the unknown, unknown. And here's one to do with technology. Um, some of you may have heard of a, uh, an archaeological device called the Antikythera mechanism. Uh, this is a kind of little clock-like bit of clockwork that was found in a ship near the Greek island of Antik Antikythera. Uh, it was a shipwreck. Uh, from the first century, it's about 2,000 years old, and it had sunk while going between one part of the ancient Greek and ancient Roman world and another, carrying mostly amphorae of wine and such, but in the wreck was found this intricate, intricate clockwork device, which required amazing skill and ingenuity to make, and various reconstructions and x-rays have found but there were no fewer than 53, I think, cogged wheel devices that if they were to have gone round at all, would have had to be very, very finely machined. There are a couple of really good books about it at the moment. It seems to have been a demonstration device to show the uh, workings of the cosmos, like an astrolabe. Um, now, given uh, it shows that in antiquity, there... War, there must have been some 
incredible capacity for engineering design, engineering thought, and the ability to machine pieces to unbelievably high tolerances for this thing to work at all. Now consider, in Newton's time, 1500 years later or so, Newton had a problem uh, measuring his, doing his clocks, for example, because in his day there were no clocks that were any more accurate to the nearest quarter of an hour, let alone minutes or seconds. Now, the, the received wisdom about the Antikythera mechanism is that it was a single, bespoke, crafted device. But I do wonder, given how little we know, whether it is the sign of a whole machine engineering tool industry that existed in antiquity of which we have otherwise no knowledge at all. Um, perhaps there are all kinds of blueprints in the lost library of Alexandria of machines. We have idea there were steam pumps, maybe there were aircraft, absolutely, who knows. So the assumption of progress um, is usually based on the fact that we don't know that we don't know things. And we tend to put things into a line and assume that one thing led to another in an orderly progress. Now, that was an example of technology. But I'm going to come to an example from human human prehistory, uh, paleoanthropology, which is one of the things that concern me at Nature, where I have been a professional bone watcher for uh, 32 years. Um, well, I'm a paleontologist, so I can count to one and two, and after three, I have to lie down in a darkened room for a bit. But um, they tell me I've been there for 32 years. Now, in 2003, now I look at maybe 700 manuscripts, new scientific papers every year, and most of them are very, very tiny increments on things that we know that we know. They do look into things that we don't know, that, that we know we don't know, but usually not very far. So the answer is very surprising. But only once, only once in my career have I seen something that was from the unknown unknown. In 2003, a manuscript arrived at my desk reporting the discovery of a very strange skull and bits of a skeleton. It came from a remote island called Flores, which is in Indonesia, and it reported the uh, skull and skeleton of a tiny, tiny, yet adult individual, a female human creature that was no more than a metre tall. It had a very human-like skull, but very, very small, and it had great big floppy hands and feet. And it was soon called the Hobbit, because it was, had big feet and lived in a hole in the ground. This was completely unexpected. The people who, the archaeological team, who were basically some uh, for archaeologists from Australia and Indonesia, were actually interested in a different question. They were looking for um, evidence uh, that showed how human beings first um, uh, first got to Australia, that magic land. Uh, full of cold lager and um, uh, and uh, Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. But what they found was something completely unexpected, this creature, the Hobbit. Now, normally when people send papers to nature, they, um, 
they they pretty much know the implications of what they found. This particular paper, it was quite clear that the authors had no idea what they had found. And it took a great consortium of me and lots of academic referees to actually give them, give the authors the confidence to actually come out and say, yes, you have found something completely new and unexpected. Nobody had any expectation that this kind of thing happened. Another reason I know that this was one of the, were the only unknown unknown things was the amount of media coverage it got. Now, stories that get published in Nature usually have a lot of traction for a day or two, but, you know, after a couple of days, they're what we used to call fish and chip paper. Um, uh, but this one ran for weeks and weeks and actually became subject to cartoons and part of popular culture. It struck a chord. Within anthropology, it struck a chord because it's, it got people to suddenly think that the canonical order of human progress, which you've seen for ages, I'm going to show this up here so everyone will, everyone will know this. You've all seen that, the, the kind of march of progress that goes from an ape-like thing to a shambling uh, thing walking on its hands and knees and then it goes and ends up as a premiership footballer. Uh, people have tended to think of a very progressive view of human evolution. This one put a spanner in the works because the Hobbit was very primitive, but it lived only 50,000 years ago when there were already modern humans on the planet. And this suggested that there were enormous voids in our knowledge, things that we didn't know that we didn't know. So what anthropologists have done is um, they've been going back to their collections to look at all the strange, weird skulls that they put at the back of the cupboard and try to forget about because they actually don't accord with the canonical progressive view of human evolution. And what this has done, The Hobbit has actually caused an explosion in anthropology, but particularly in the way we think about the diversity of human beings. It wasn't a, even though Homo sapiens is the single hominin species that there now is, human progress has not been a case of one species handing the baton to another, which handing baton to another. There was a, there was a great bushy evolution of human beings. And, um, as recently as 50,000 years ago, there were five or six or more uh, species of human uh, living on the planet, and only one survives. And we only know a few of these by the merest scraps of bone, and some of them we don't even know from that because we can now look at ancient DNA, DNA that lives in all of us, and there is DNA in people uh, that actually comes from kinds of hominin that the existence of that we didn't know we didn't know except in their dna they've given us their dna all that is left of these are like the smile left by the cheshire cat tale of human fossil discovery is a tale beset by challenges to assumptions people have made about evolutionary progress what usually happens in human evolution is somebody discovers a fossil and says it's a new species, and then either somebody says, oh, no, it's a deformed human, 
which was the case with the Hobbit. People thought a lot. A lot of people thought they were just deformed humans, or that it was an ape. And in fact, the only species of human for which the scientific world gave immediate credence without demur was Piltdown Man. Um, and uh, strangely enough, that turned out to be a fraud. Uh, thank you very much, everybody. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. Remember to like, subscribe and review wherever you listen. And tune in next week for more big ideas from the world's leading thinkers. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.